Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Um, welcome, all of you, to tonight's session. Um, welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. Uh, I'm Ruby Jones. I'm your host for the next hour or so. Um, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present. So, tonight's session is called Crime on the Record, and I am so excited to be here with three of the country's best crime journalists and podcasters. Um, this is a, a dream panel for me, getting to chat to my idols, and um, I hope it is for you guys as well. Uh, without further ado, I think I'll just introduce everyone who's on the panel tonight. Um, next to me is Kate McClymont. Kate is uh, <laughs> clearly a favourite. Uh, Kate is the Chief Investigative Reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald. She is a nine-time Walkley winner, including a gold Walkley. In 2017, she was inducted into the Media Hall of Fame. In 2020, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for her services to the print media and investigative journalism. Kate's most recent podcast, well, her only podcast, (laughs) is Liar Liar, Melissa Caddick and The Missing Millions. So that series... If you've listened to it, it unravels the web of deceit that became apparent after the corporate regulator raided Melissa Caddick's home in the eastern suburbs as part of an investigation into her giant Ponzi scheme in which she stole millions and millions of dollars from investors, many of whom were her own friends and family. Uh, It's a gripping series and uh, welcome, Kate. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Ruby. Headley Thomas in the middle here. Headley's been a journalist for more than 35 years. Um, he focuses on long-form podcast investigations into the unsolved murders of women. I'm sure you know him from his first podcast series, The Teacher's Pet, which looked into the murder of Lynette Dawson. Uh, that series, I thought it had 70 million, it had 80 million 80 downloads, million. Headley told me on the way in. Uh, it also won a Gold Walkley. Um, and I think it's fair to call it the, the first runaway podcast success that we saw in this country. Um, and a murder conviction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Um, since then, Headley's been on a roll. Uh, there's been five podcasts uh, in total. Um, his most recent podcast series is Shandy's Story, which investigates the stabbing murder of Shandy in Queensland in 2013. Um, that podcast uncovered gross negligence in testing by the state's DNA laboratory and also triggered a Royal Commission inquiry. So... Welcome, Headley. Thank you. And the final member of our panel tonight is Pat Abud. Pat is a Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist. He's also a documentary director. He's a TV and radio host. Uh, You might know him from the feed on SBS or from the Mardi Gras live broadcast and from Dateline. Uh, He's a three-time winner at the New York Festival's TV and Radio Awards. Uh, He's a Media Diversity Australia and Kennedy Award winner too. Uh, his most recent series, um, it's a true, true crime documentary series called The Greatest Menace. I believe it's won nine international awards. Is it more now? Twelve as of this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone up. <laughs> so that series is an investigation into what was the world's only gay prison, which was right here in New South Wales. In the series, we go from underground nightclubs to hidden sex haunts to remote parts of New Zealand and England. And Pat hones in on a police cover-up, uh, a case of wrongful conviction, and what seems like a, a human experiment that, that didn't go to plan. It's an incredibly moving series. Um, so congratulations, Pat. Welcome. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. So... Let's get stuck in. Um, I thought we could open on the question of what it is that makes a worthy subject for a true crime series. So the genre of the the true crime podcast, it was arguably kicked off about a decade ago now with Serial in 2013. That series, of course, raises serious doubts about the the guilt of an incarcerated man, Adnan Seed, and um, looks at the the way the criminal justice system worked and and what happened, uh, why he was imprisoned. In the 10 years since then, we've seen almost every version, I think, of of the true crime audio story. There's the the ones about the convicted killer who is actually innocent. There's the the reverse, the stories that search for the killer that's never been caught. Um, 
there are the versions of the genre that focus in on the, you know, the weirdos in the small towns. Um, there are the series that probe police failures, those that look at systemic sexism, racism. I mean, it seems like we've come at it from almost every way imaginable. Headley, I want to start with you on this because I know you're now on your fifth podcast series. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you decide to investigate one particular case? Because I'm sure at this point you would have people contacting you all the time asking you to take on their case. So why, why do you pick one over another? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Ruby. I, I feel uh, when I'm trying to work out which uh, investigation to take up that it's really important as a starting point uh, that I can feel committed and passionate about the subject, about the, um, the probable wrongdoing or injustice that, that is at the centre of it, because the commitment that is required to do a, a long-form, um, deep-dive podcast investigation is such that um, uh, you're going to spend less time with your family, you're going to spend a fair bit of time getting quite stressed, working really long hours, and if you're not deeply um, engaged in the subject, you're not going to give it your very best. So that's one of the first boxes I want to tick. I want to feel like I can make a difference and I really care about this particular case. The second thing I want to do is understand that I can um, possibly solve the case. And uh, that's why, unfortunately, some cases that don't have any documentary um, um, base, that is, uh, I don't have access to, for example, coroner's records or police statements from an original investigation. When there's nothing there except for um, fragile memories of people, many of whom uh, are elderly, it makes it really hard to believe that I can find new evidence that could solve the case. But when you've got the, the, the documents, the statements from witnesses who might have given evidence to police many years earlier, you, you can go back and talk to those people uh, and track down other people who are mentioned in those statements and you start to, to form um, some, some momentum going forward. So that's, that's another box I like to tick. Uh, and um, I think they're the main they're the main factors, and and uh, I've you know had to make some really tough decisions over the last few years because as a result of the um, the the impact of the teacher's pet and 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 the charging of Chris Dawson in 2018, you know we were receiving so many. Um, um, submissions and, and very poignant pleas from people seeking help and you know filtering those and working out what we can we can possibly do justice to um, meant that we had to disappoint a lot of people but if you don't apply that criteria I fear that you could go round and around and not make any difference. Mm. And your series have largely focused on on missing suspected murdered victims. I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Pat, because your series, The Greatest Menace, I mean, it's very different. You don't start with a singular victim in mind. You start with this rumour that you've heard about this gay prison uh, in New South Wales and you sort of work your way backwards. And I don't want to spoil the end, but (laughs) you do find someone who had been in that prison by the end of your series, but it takes a long time to get there. And I just wonder, I mean, were you worried that you you wouldn't find that that person? Oh, yeah. Every waking hour and every sleeping moment. Um, as Headley, Detective Headley um, <laughs> said, it really does consume your life. Like Headley, it's really, um, you know, when, and I'm sure Kate probably feels the same, when you come across a story and you realise that it's a story that if you don't look into further, someone might not, and then this story may never get told. So you sort of start with one element and then it leads to many others, and over three and a half years, I, at the end of it, didn't realise how much time I'd actually spent until I got to the end of it. And, of course, for the first sort of year, uh, I had found nobody who was in this um, prison. Um, I had no leads to a former inmate. And without a former inmate and a sort of first-person testimony, it's really hard to tell an authentic story. There were so many other elements to our investigation. I should say that my... Um, co-producer on the project, Simon Kunick, who's not here tonight, we worked, you know, very closely together on all of the research, the writing and producing of the series. But in that initial research phase, like, you really do have to keep pushing yourself to keep going further because there's a million closed doors before you get one that opens. 
and I can feel Headley nodding <laughs> beside me. It's really difficult to keep going because you do consistently come up against it. And this is after spending, say, just after the first, um, you know, 11 or 12 months, say, uh, at every repository you can imagine Corrective Services has any link or connection to New South Wales, the state libraries, all the archives, um, even local libraries, whatever it was, I tried everything I possibly could to join the dots because, you know, those sort of walls that you see in true crime series that you're all here tonight because obviously you're into true crime, um, you know, the mugshots with the lines and the sticky paper, it's a real thing. I mean, I did that the entire time. I had a studio that I was working from and the wall changed every few days, not even every few weeks. It was a consistent thing. And then you realise that you've got to keep going down these rabbit holes in order to get to that one source that opens up, you know, the floodgates to all these elements and questions that you're trying to answer through the process of research. So there's never enough research. It, it can never end. I'm still working on the series. I think I will forever be working on the series. I haven't found the thing that I want to find. Um, and until I find it, I probably won't let the story rest. Even though it's had such great success, which is really humbling, um, you know, and we've managed to well, I can't actually say that because I'm going to give it away. You have to listen to episode <laughs> nine. We've, been, we've managed to basically have a genuine impact on people's lives, you know. So as Hadley and Kate would probably attest to as well, it's an extraordinary reward for all of that work. But, yeah, to answer, you know, wrap up and answer your question, you just don't know whether you're going to get that, that thing that you want. See, you've got to believe that you will and push through. And inevitably, you... If you don't get that thing, you'll get something else because the rigour and the, the level of detail that you go through in the research pulls things up. You go back to original source material. I mean, for me, this was a story that was never been, had never been told before, so there was no original source material. I had to create it. And Simon and I spent the first year building our own database from all of the individual archives and bits and pieces of research that we found along the way. So, yeah, you... Can I just ask, how did you support yourself while you were <laughs> spending the year doing that? <laughs> you mean emotionally or financially, no, no, financially. or psychologically <laughs> or all of the above? Emotionally, my partner's in the audience. He was great. Um, <laughs> my, you know, my family, my son and his two mums and my extended family. But um, financially, um, I applied for a grant, essentially, to the Walkley Foundation. And at the same time, I also applied to the Jesse Cox Audio Fellowship which was the inaugural um, sort of release of that program. And, you know, I must say this now, if you don't know Jesse Cox's works, you should go look, look him up. He was an extraordinary audio storyteller, an extraordinary journalist and a phenomenal human. Passed away very young from brain cancer, was 31. And they set up this fellowship in his honour. So I was the first recipient of this fellowship. And it allowed me to spend that amount of time and develop the sort of roadmap uh, you know, not just in terms of the editorial and the journalistic sort of research and rigour, but also audio in the audio language that I sort of wanted to experiment with as well. So it was the fellowship, the Walkley Foundation gave me a grant, uh, and then we got commissioned by Audible. Um, great question, Kate, because I get a lot of younger journalists asking me, how do I make a podcast um, and get paid for it? <laughs> it's a great question, but it it's getting better, I think, um, not to go off track too much to talk about, you know, funding channels, but it is getting much better because of the work of Headley and Kate. And you guys kind of paved the way for me, to be fair, because you made this great work. And uh, last year, for example, winning, um, winning the Walkley as an independent journalist... Beating me, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she's not mine. Come on. <laughs> Plus a goal. Thanks for giving me one, Kate. I mean, thank you. Um, Kate's you know, only won nine, oh. nine, was it? Yeah, you can afford to give a few away by now. It's true, though. There's this sort of, you know, people in Australia, I think, are now taking podcasts very seriously. And there is this sort of integrity. I mean, radio makers and investigative journalists outside of the form often, I know this because I've sort of had it said to me, you know, look down on podcasts. It's not real journalism. But the work that you think, extraordinary work that you did... Headley and also now Kate, has really paved the way. And hopefully with The Greatest Menace, it's the same thing. So the, there's a shift, you know. Podcasts are being taken very seriously. 
the stories that we're telling are really important, people's lives are being changed, royal commissions are happening, um, convictions. I mean... But also, the, I think the fascinating thing about doing a podcast is that material comes into you as a result of your podcast. So, you know, people will listen to an episode and then contact you and say, I've got more information. Yeah. And it's that, um, it's that unfolding, uh, you know, process and you don't actually know what's going to come yeah, of you, what you're doing. And exactly. I find that a really interesting, um, you know, process to do. Can well, you tell us a bit after... more, yeah, a bit more about how that worked for you in, in Liar Liar? Well, because, if, your, yeah, your show, is, it's so different to these two. I mean, you're focusing on on the alleged villain here. You're not looking at the victim, you're looking at Melissa Caddick. And, and so how does that kind of work and how do you, how do you well, think it, about her as you're making the series? So, and look, life has some very strange outcomes. I, was, I only started looking at Melissa Caddick because I was looking at somebody else whose house got raided the same week and the person I was looking at was accused of insider trading and I rang up ASIC and they just said, can't comment, get lost. So I rang up the federal police <laughs> and they said, ah, yes. Now, do you mean search warrants in Wallaroy Road or Wallangra Road? And I said, oh, no, um, well, I'm, I'm looking at Wallaroy, but who's in, who's in Wallangra? <laughs> and, of course, I immediately think that my insider trader is having an affair with Melissa. Uh. <laughs> totally, totally wrong. But it was just sort of... So I thought, oh, well... And I started looking at her. So what happened to the other story? That just didn't turn out to be as good? No, ASIC... Um, no, I wrote that story up, but ASIC didn't go ahead with the um, insider... Tra- they executed search warrants, but they didn't go ahead with the, the case. But it's one of those things where you just find yourself, oh, you know, uh, so I started doing searches on Melissa Caddick and I was surprised to find that, you know, she lived in this house but there was no press about her, no nothing and as I'm looking at her, she goes missing. So it's just that strange um, convergence of you you just happen to be looking at somebody. And so when I did my first story, I got called by people who said can you come and look at my documents? And I've got a ComSec account and my ComSec account has eight digits and there's only had six. So it was just that simple thing of you've only got six digits, I'm sorry. And these poor people, it was just terrible. So the thing is, once you do one episode, um, relatives, friends, um, people who've been ripped off before, and, you know, one of the most interesting things was a person who had employed Melissa Caddick years ago as a secretary and she'd forged his signature on cheques. So, you know, there was that. Um, And you sort of think if people had only taken the opportunity to report her then, it would have saved Mm -hmm. so much pain for other people. But I think you just see in corporate life so much that people would rather that their, you know, the, their corporation doesn't get bad press rather than call someone out. So, you know, and you two would have seen that. Yeah, I think people also don't, like, you know, sort of maybe the audience, what I never realised before I started this process of deep interrogation of one particular story is that there are traces of everything. People in bureaucratic departments within government, people like Melissa Caddick, um, you know, dodgy people basically, they think they're really smart and they think they're doing something that's nobody is ever going to kind of uncover or find out about, but they leave you little, like, nuggets. They leave you little traces. And that's why it takes so long because you find all these little um, breadcrumbs, if you like, and you've got to sort of sweep them together <laughs> to make the cake, right? One of the biggest breakthroughs that uh, I was lucky enough to have during the rollout of the Teacher's Pet podcast series in 2018 was... It came in around um, uh, June, uh, so the, the podcast had been, um, uh, it was about a, about a month old by then, and I had been looking for some time for a, um, one of these great breadcrumbs. I didn't know whether, um, whether it had been destroyed years earlier or whether it still existed. And the breadcrumb was a, a complaint, a formal complaint that Lynn Dawson's good friend Sue Strath had made 
Um, she remembered making it in 1985 to the um, then State Ombudsman's Office, and it was a complaint about the failure of police to properly investigate the disappearance of Sue's good friend, Lynn, with whom she worked at the childcare centre on the Northern Beaches. And Lynn had disappeared three years earlier. And so I thought that a, a written complaint generated by a friend might still survive. And that written complaint would have, would have triggered, uh, at that time in 1985, an investigation by the office uh, of the Ombudsman of the, the um, conduct or inactivity of the police in 1985. Because they have to, um, you know, it's a bureaucratic agency and the Ombudsman would have had to open up their investigation, their, their investigative files and go and talk to the police and say, what did you actually do? This woman, Sue Strath, says you didn't properly investigate the disappearance. So justify your actions. Did you send police around? Did you interview her colleagues and so on? Um, and we know that um, bureaucracies uh, do keep lots of pieces of paper, these breadcrumbs. They keep they, everything. They keep everything. And so I, I was so desperately trying to find this material. The inquest in 2001 did not have the file. The inquest in 2003 didn't have the file. I knew that the police who had started um, investigating the case in, I guess, what you'd call phase two of the investigation of Lynn Dawson's disappearance in 1998. They didn't have this file. but um, And I contacted the Ombudsman and they said, we don't have the file, it's been destroyed years ago. It's a really, really old file. There's no way it would have survived. So I was really frustrated. Then I started going online to the Office of the State Archives. And this is a place out at, uh, is it called Kingswood? in yes. Western Sydney, yeah. And, um, uh, That's where I grew up, Henry. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I am so grateful to this place because uh, this is um, the facility for storing thousands and thousands of documents that have been generated over decades by agencies like the Office of the State Ombudsman. And to cut a long story short, I contacted them after seeing some curious... Um, and encouraging uh, things on the um, on their website, suggesting that they might have might have ombudsman investigation files. Sure enough, um, a fantastic uh, archivist there called Jenny Sloggett, she um, confirmed to me that they had found the Sue Strath um, uh, complaint and investigation file from 1985. It was numbered. It was about 45 pages in length, and it even included a handwritten statement that Chris Dawson had written to the police in 1982, which the, and the police version of that statement had been destroyed, but the Ombudsman got a photocopy of it as part of their investigation of police action, and that statement helped convict him. Wow. That statement... Was it, was it Julie Hanna? The archivist? <laughs> That's, it's the same archive that I found Jenny my Slogan. big lead, my smoking gun, <laughs> right. the very same archive. Yeah. So state archives are unbelievable places. Extraordinary. And if you're investigating and, an old crime. As opposed to the coroner's office. Yes. yes. Yeah. So if you're thinking about doing a podcast and you send a little message to the coroner's office, they say that'll be 12 months before you can access the files. Mm. Mm. So, and it's also America is so different to Australia. You get access to transcripts of court cases, to a whole lot of things. Here, you know, I just tried to, um, I, I applied for access to something that I'm looking at um, and they just said, no, it's not in the public interest to, um, to have those transcripts. And I can go in and look at them. I'm not asking them. And you just sort of think, oh, God, it's just so hard. It's, it's really incredible. Like, it, it is that thing of you, you, again, it's another cliche, but it's true. I mean, I went through thousands and thousands of bits of paper in multiple boxes at different archives over the first year and, and just got, like, literally nothing and was really frustrated. And this archive, which is behind, like, streets behind the house I grew up in, it, the similarities and the kind of connections to... Um, in the podcast, you'll hear this. There's sort of this personal story that unfolds because of the locality of the actual archive and the connection of the prison to my own um, sort of upbringing. Mm. Uh, and I found this file, thanks to Julie Hanna, the arch archivists are amazing people. We need to give them a round of applause. Mm. <laughs> yes. Archivists, yeah. we could not do our job without them. And they deserve all the, all the kudos because they don't get it. Can you go to them directly, though? You can go to them directly, you can. And oh. you can literally say, I think this... <laughs> I think, look, Kate's, Kate's on the case already. Um, oh. But look, just, just to wrap up that thought, because I think it is a really 
the process itself is what makes for a great story, is the point we're trying to make here. If you're not willing to inv investigate and interrogate the story to the nth degree, you, you, th there's no point, because these stories... Uh, bureaucracies lock things away, they keep everything else, but they lock things away for a reason, and they bury things under the carpet for a reason. And it's, then our, it's our job to go and lift the carpet and pull yeah. them out. And what you're really talking about here is, is access, and access to archives and documents is obviously one very important part of, of your investigations. But, I mean, I can't help but think that you... you You've probably had quite different experiences. I'm thinking you, Headley, and you, Pat, when it comes to access to police. I know in your um, podcast, Pat, you're, mm. you're completely stonewalled by New South Wales police for, you know, a lot of your investigation. And, I mean, I don't want to assume, but I think you've got some pretty solid police contacts, Headley, who, you yeah. know, might have helped. And so I think you, you might have had quite, a different, quite well, different experiences there. Look, um, I think... My experience with police is um, I don't think I've ever had a good story from police that have been given to me directly because uh, I've um, got, you know, police contacts, but they've been incredibly careful. And um, in the main, my better contacts have been in the legal community, have been lawyers, um, whether prosecutors or criminal defence lawyers. So uh, I've been disappointed by police, and I think that police... Uh, would prefer to hang on to their material even when they've stopped investigating a case. I think sometimes there's a bit of an us and them sense. They get quite territorial, and uh, and would um, and would you know rather you didn't look at it because there's a concern that if you do look at it and they've made errors or they've missed things, it gets really embarrassing. So I, I haven't had great experiences with cops, although I know plenty, but. Um, I think that the lesson for me as a result of doing the teacher's pet and Shandy story is that um, in both of those uh, in podcast investigations, I had uh, ended up getting access, not thanks to the police, um, although I do want to acknowledge the former police commissioner, Mick Fuller, who as a result of the podcast coming out and the public act reaction, he did engage with it and uh, asked his officers to also... Um, take material from me which I thought needed to be followed up and, and, and engage with me. So that, you know, that was a good result. But the archives that I was able to access, the transcripts from inquests in 2001 and 2003 into Lynn Dawson's presumed death um, and the um, uh, other materials that I had in that case and then also the, the materials that I had in Shandy's case, again, trial transcripts, committal proceedings transcripts and inquest transcripts. The, I don't think it's a coincidence that in both those cases, we ended up getting really powerful results. It's because of the access to the, the material that is the same material Kate was talking about trying to get recently and being told to sod off. And there's, the, there's an almost pathologically, um, I think, um, 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 obstructive um, approach that some agencies will take to very legitimate and sensible requests by by journalists and by interested members of the public who just want to access material that should be actually owned by all of us. It was generated at public expense. It should be accessible to taxpayers. And when we get that material, that's when we can make a result. We can potentially solve unsolved crimes if the... Um, um, control freaks who who would rather not share that material stopped you know trying to play you know um, um, God uh, and and released it to us. Yeah, I mean, corrective services. Obviously, New South Wales Police and corrective services, two different departments. To this day, New South Wales Police will not acknowledge the use of entrapment um, in the undercover vice squad operations that were operating in the 50s, 60s, 70s on the streets of New South Wales. So, essentially, this gay prison that was established, um, if you haven't heard the podcast yet, a big part of how they captured this sample of gay men to put in the prison was via entrapment. So they had these agent provocateurs, which essentially means cops, handsome, good-looking cops who posed as gay men at beats where men would go to meet because it was illegal at the time, and they would entrap them and arrest them so they had a sample to send to the prison and run their human experiment to try and cure homosexuality. Horrifying story. And New South Wales police have 
I mean, you mentioned Mardi Gras earlier. When I was hosting that, um, when I was still at SBS, I interviewed the police commissioner on the street at the time and bailed him up right there in the middle of this, you know, huge gay celebration for an apology for the, you know, the injustices brought against LGBT people historically. And they have apologised for general mistreatment of the LGBT community, but they won't acknowledge that entrapment because what it means, as Hedley just sort of touched on, is that it opens up a whole nother can of worms that they don't want to deal with because it means that somebody wasn't doing their job or somebody made a mistake or somebody did something illegal and they fucked up, essentially. And that's why they don't like us investigative journalists because we get passionate about making injustices right. And injustices of the past particularly with organisations like New South Wales Police, just mean a whole lot of work for them. And it's not... I mean, I agree with what you say, Hedley, where there's sort of these... Um, there's a lot of ego involved. They're, you know, they're control freaks because if they've looked into something already and they've got to a certain point, then they want to draw a line under it and say, end of story, move on. But we don't want to do that. <laughs> we want to rub that line out and ask the questions, and we want answers and access to material. So you really do come up against it, with, particularly with police. I've never got a straight answer from New South Wales Police on any request, question, uh, conversation that I've had with them in the last 10 years, which is really appalling. And I know that, you know, they're very cleverly dancing around very specific questions that would be really easy for them to answer and it would lead me down a path to uncover more and probably make another podcast. But they won't do that. They'll do everything in their power to block you. Corrective services was infinitely worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it's really hard to not sort of go into detail, but also just, just the sort of pricey. There's a, the prison that I'm referring to is Kuma. It's in a tiny little regional town, Kuma, just on the way to the Snowy Mountains. Good at Taser, though. Pardon? Good at tasering. Yes. <laughs> terrible. Sorry. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Too soon, Kate, too soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's a museum outside the prison. And in this museum, uh, there's no reference at all, there was no reference at the time that this prison was once a gay prison and ran this horrible human experiment. So once I'd sort of, you know, this is in the second year of the investigation, found the evidence that I needed thanks to the archive in Kingswood and a folder at the bottom of a shelf with dusty, dusty folder. Um, you know, I went to Creative Service and I said, well, look, this, this is the historian that you employed at the time to create a chronology of what the prison was used for. This is the thing that's on display in the museum. They're identical documents, but they've been doctored. And here's the proof. Why have you erased from the public record that this prison was used as a gay prison and some horrible shit went down. You need to answer that question and you need to rectify it. So it took 14 months for them to actually respond to a series of emails, phone calls, in-person meetings with the highest um, person in you know, comms at Corrective Services. That's the other thing. You can't actually get to the commissioner. You can't get to the decision makers because there's all these other people in the bureaucratic process before. So you just got to keep going. Um, eventually, they have replaced that chronology and acknowledged that it was doctored. And now in that museum, there's an accurate chronology that details that it was once a gay prison. So it's worth it. You know, for all those men who went through horrible things and lives, their lives were destroyed, to see that, that there's an acknowledgement of this horrible injustice is enough for me to keep going with that investigation. Um, I want to preface this next question by saying that I love all of your work so much and I have the deepest respect for you, but I want to talk a bit about some of the, the, the pitfalls of, of true crime reporting, some of the, you know, the cliches, the traps, um, you know, the biases that even the best journalists can have. And I think, Hedley, I might come to you first mm. on this <laughs> because your, your podcast investigations, you specialise obviously in the unsolved murders of, of women. And, I mean, there are just so many kind of tropes and cliches around, you know, victimhood and, you know, who is deserving of investigation. Um, and I just wonder if you could talk a bit about how, how you navigate that and whether your approach has changed. Mm. And I just had a really weird thought while you were asking that question about um, a fictitious podcast series where 
three competing true crime podcasters <laughs> are up against right each now. other, and one gets murdered. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the others are then competing with each other to try and solve the murder. Of who did it. Let's, would you listen to that? Would you listen to that? I don't know why I just thought of that, but that's just. Um, so the pitfalls are many, and um, I think one of the major ones uh, is uh, legal because. When we're uh, investigating an unsolved murder where there's um, one or perhaps two key suspects that you can't avoid actually identifying. Um, they were probably persons of interest in the original investigation and uh, you need to you know, profile their involvement or connection to the victim. So... Um, uh, Having your, your work carefully reviewed by, by the lawyers is um, just so vital. but Also but very painful. Painful <laughs> and expensive. Luckily, we don't pay the bills. You don't pay the bills for your... No. no. Um, thank goodness, because um, uh, it would be incredibly expensive. Kate, uh, in particular, and I know I've made a significant contribution to the wealth of lawyers across the, this, <laughs> this country... <laughs> Uh, we probably should. Um, Kate's funded life. Get, we should get invited to the best lawyer parties that are going <laughs> because the tennis courts and pools and holiday houses that have been built with legal fees from public inquiries that Kate's triggered and I've been involved in starting would be enormous. Um, so, getting the story right legally is uh, uh, crucial, and then working out how far you can um, push things to um, elicit all the material you want to elicit and communicate it, but just fall short of being sued. That, that Did you get legal threats from Chris Dawson along the way? No, we didn't get a single legal threat from Chris Dawson, which um, confirmed to us that he uh, did not want to stand up for himself. He didn't want to risk being put into the witness box to give evidence about how he had been horribly defamed. Um, and it was, a, it was a, an encouraging sign to us because um, it, I think, sometimes does indicate that a person has a guilty conscience. You know, they don't want to defend their reputation. That's one of the major pitfalls for, for me is, is legal because the lawyers sometimes want to minimise your story, um, ensure that, that uh, you know, the company's profile, company's risk isn't elevated and, you know, when Kate and I and Patrick, we're not actually going to end up paying the damages that the company might be ordered to pay. So we're saying, no, no, you've got to be much braver and bolder than this. We, we want to say this and this and this. In fairness, like you've always got to put to the other side or put to the accused what, what you know, you're proposing to publish or say. Um, but um, what about when it comes to, to storytelling, though? And this mm. could um, kind of go to, to any of you, but you're obviously there's a lot that you're weighing up. You're weighing up how much of someone's personal life um, belongs in the public domain. Um, you know, you're sort of you're weighing up, I guess, the more sensational aspects of a story against, um, you know, how vulnerable a person might be. There's a lot to you, kind of you think do, about. You do make decisions along the way. For instance, um, in the Melissa Caddick story, we have never used the name of her son. We've never mentioned where he goes to school because you sort of think, you know, as if that poor kid hasn't gone through enough. And you, you do make those kind of editorial decisions, um, you know, to try to protect people. And, and sometimes if, if people come to you and say, I, I want to talk but I don't want my name to be used, mm. you know, you do honour those kind of things. Because if you don't, you know, word soon gets out that you, you know, you wouldn't be trusted. So you have to be, you have to weigh all those things up. And it's also trying to weigh up um, what is in the public interest and what is the public interested in. <laughs> and they are sometimes different. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, something that struck me particularly with your podcast is obviously Melissa Caddick has vanished, so she cannot be interviewed by you in your podcast. So how are you sort of thinking about her as you're telling her story? You know, one of the weird things about that was that the day we were going to do, you know, we booked into the studio to do the first recording of the podcast was the day her shoe washed up. And I remember saying to Tom Steinford, well, that's it. 
It's no podcast. And you sort of think, I had no idea that the washing up of the shoe would give the pod, you know would would give the whole Melissa Caddick story a whole new turn. And the thing is, you you don't know um, you, you don't know how these things are going to turn out really. Mm. And it was interesting being at the coroner's court um, on Thursday of this week, where the coroner finally said, "I can say that Melissa Caddick is deceased." But then I thought, oh, no, there's still going to be more conspiracy theorists when she said, but I can't tell when, where and how. And by the way, her husband's a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Pat? Because, I, I mean, your piece, you're, you know, on the one hand, you're dealing with these obviously really traumatised men sometimes and in interviewing them about things that have happened to them. But your story is framed around this kind of true crime framework. How did you sort of juggle those two? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't actually a true crime story to start with. It mm. never was. It was really just my passion to uncover this horrible injustice that occurred. And the fact that what really drove me was that the thought that that could have been me. You know, I'm a gay man. I, I could have, if I was, you know, in my early 20s in 1957 or 1958, I could have been entrapped and ended up in that prison and my whole life could have fallen apart. Mm. So there's this sort of thing that, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're interviewing often. And I'm a really emotional guy, you know. I, I feel things really intensely. So there's this constant process of checking your ethics, checking the integrity of the story and weighing those things up all the time. And you ask yourself the question, do I really need, for example, a year after we finished the series... So many people write to us, it was incredible. The response was like something I'd never seen before on any other story of my entire working life. And I suppose that's a testament to the fact that people want to speak. You just have to provide the right platform for them and make them feel safe enough that the repercussions of whatever they say, they're prepared for. And I think that's part of the interview process. You don't go in you know, run an interview, record it and leave and walk out the door. You build relationships with these people. I didn't press record on an, a device for months and months and months. I had phone conversations with almost everybody that ended up in the series multiple times. I met with them in person where it was possible, travelled, you know, to other countries. It's a really long process and that is really important because these are things that people have dealt with in part of their life and they've moved forward. You don't want to re-traumatise them. Firstly, that's the most important thing. And you want to really understand and feel from them that they want to tell this story because it will do something for them. Mm. So at the same time, there's this huge voice in the back of your head going, but this is in the public interest. This is, this is a story that has to be told. And you get this sort of like, um, you know, you can get on your high horse a little bit. You know, it's my job. It's my job to do this. Mm. So you really are weighing that up all the time. But for me, it's most important that I know that I have put the work in with every single, every single person that I interview to know that it's on their terms. Mm. It has to be. Particularly when it, you're dealing with trauma, you're dealing with difficult things that people have been through. Mm. So, yeah, it is a really... Um, it's a difficult, difficult thing. It's a contest between ethics and integrity all the time. And integrity always wins for me. But some people might go, well, how could you, how could you have got that person to tell you about this horrible thing he went through over and over again? Like, why did you need to do that? So, yeah, it is a really difficult thing. But in the long run, when you realise that personal story is everything, you know, when someone can give you a first-hand account of an experience they've been through... You think about when you guys in the audience, when you go see a film at the cinema, you know, a narrative, a drama, you make connections with characters, right? You identify with people, you feel things. You think, oh, I've been through that, or I wonder what that feels like. It's the same thing in our world. You know, investigative journalism, there's heart in it. And I really, I, I consistently look for that heart. And there is heart in your podcast, Pat. I think yours is probably the most personal of, of the three. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about your partner, you talk about, your, you talk to your mum, she appears in the podcast. She's the best. <laughs> I love it every time she comes in. Um, you mention your son at times as well. Um, and, I mean, I suppose it's less so for, for you, Kate and Headley, but I do wonder how close you kind of end up getting to, to the people that 
of a subject of your stories and and kind of how you you navigate that and and whether you put boundaries up and and how that feels. Would you like to go first? Oh, um, some of Melissa Caddick's um, victims ring me almost every single day, Mm. every day. Wow. And um, you always feel like I love speaking to them and you sort of feel like you're on a journey together. And you try to – I always um, I always try and include people, you know, if something happens, I might ring up and say, guess what's happened? Because if they're kind enough to give you their story, you sort of feel like sharing things. Mm-hmm. And it's – I think it's lovely that they feel like that they can ring you at any time about anything and you'll pick up the call. And I, I, I think journalists get a really bad name for – using people and not caring about them afterwards mm. whereas I always think it's um it's the least we can do to show some care and compassion about what they're going through and to talk to them it takes you know so little to make people mm. feel as though you know and they are valuable they've mm. given something to you it's the least you can do mm. And what about you, Hadley? I yeah, mean, you I, seem quite close to yeah, Shady's I've family. Yeah, I've developed really warm mm. friendships with uh, everybody um, uh, who I've uh, profiled and got to know through these podcasts, The Night Driver and Shandy Story and, and, and The Teacher's Pet. And, and they're friendships that I really value. I love um, chatting to um, Lynn's side of the family and, and to Shandy's mum and, and sister and, and Janine's family. They're, they're good people who appreciated the effort that we all go to with these kinds of investigations, they're really gruelling. You know, the, the, you feel like you're losing big chunks of your life when you're immersed in these. They can take a year, a year and a half from um, when you have the, the first idea and start working on it to, to when they're completed. I mean, with Shandy's story, it's still unfolding. Um, and it started for me just over two years ago. And they also work out early in the piece how committed and authentic and sincere you are as the storyteller, as the person who may, just may provide the the missing piece in the puzzle that helps them get justice to to give them some peace. They work it out because they see how hard you're working and they see that you're finding things or asking them questions about things that they had no idea of. You found stuff that goes farther than anyone has gone before. And um, that really creates wonderful bonds. I mean, Lynn's um, uh, brother, Greg, and uh, his wife, Marilyn, um, Lynn's sister, Pat, you know, they will be my friends until, um, uh, until, until the end. You know, they, they, they are such beautiful people. They've stayed with us um, in Brisbane. You know, we chat regularly, we exchange emails and texts all the time. And same with Shandy's um, mum and sister. I'm hoping to catch up with them overseas next month. So th- there's nothing wrong with that. You know, some people might say, oh, you, you blur the, 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 the lines and, and it's unprofessional to get too close to um, someone who's features in your story. Well, I think in a story like this, it's impossible not to get close. When you're when you're, um, but you are on a shared, a shared journey you, you, together exactly in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. become part of their story and they become part of yours. Yeah. It's, you can't tell the story without them and they sort of become reliant on you to keep giving them things that progress them forward because it's a two-way street. So mm. I think Headley said something really important there. The word authenticity is really important. I think people pick up from you whether you're authentic from the get-go. Like it's, it's genuinely, I don't know if you guys find this, Ruby, you'd find the same thing too, doing your work. You can sort of get a sense of whether or not this person on the other end of the call believes that you're genuinely, authentically interested in helping them tell their story. And if you get that sense, it sort of continues. If you don't, it sort of ends there, Mm. you know? So people are quite good judges of character, I suppose. And you sort of, Mm. you know, you trust in that, that they believe that you have good intentions. Mm. And when they see you taking risks and making big sacrifices personally and professionally to help um, uh, pursue and drive the story, you know, then um, you know, that, that relationship is just, is just locked. 
And I just wanted to get some advice on dealing with people who don't take you seriously because you're a student or because you're young. And do you need authority or do you kind of just have to fake it to make it, I guess, in trying to get good information? I think that... um, uh I mean, I get emails regularly from um, student journalists and, and, I tr- and they want to interview me and I try to um, uh, return as many calls as possible and emails and, and, and submit to the interviews. And sometimes I've, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been a bit feel, feeling a bit guilty because there's a number that have been queuing up and I haven't got back to those people. But something you said there about um, uh, the approach that you should make, I wonder whether uh, simply being honest and transparent in your email approach to people and saying, look, I'm a student journalist and you're an important or really busy figure and I understand that, but this is really important to me at my stage and I'm hoping that I can do the kind of work that you've been doing or that your colleagues have been doing and maybe with your support and giving me 20 minutes of your time, I could get there. I just think if I got an email like that, I'd be ringing you in about five minutes. If you're, <laughs> so if you've I, got to give them lots of reasons know, but, to but, reply. Um, if you try, if you try, you go, oh, no, I was just going to say, though, um, people will do anything to fob you off. Yeah. And as a student, it's so much easier just to say, um, look, I won't answer, I won't do it. And I agree with Headley, but it's just something that is so annoying. And I understand exactly what you're saying. And I just think you just have to say and be persistent. So, look, I haven't heard from you. I really need this. And then just keep doing it because the the more persistent you are, the harder it is to brush you off. off. And don't, don't don't be afraid of, like, acknowledging that you're a student and make, you know, make it clear that, you know, you're invested in the story. You've done X amount of work. This is what you've got. Tell people what you've got. Don't hold things back because if they see that you're actually putting in the work, they forget, they'll forget you're a student, you know, because you're asking the right questions, you've done your research. If you've got a really solid base to work from, the people that you're trying to get information from, I mean, they probably treat us the same, <laughs> to be fair. You know, people don't like hearing from journalists often either. So don't let the, the idea in your mind that you're a student turn you off from keep pushing because they will eventually get back to you. And if they yeah. don't, someone else yeah. will. Show them that you're invested and that you've done the work, though. And be persistent. Really great podcasts often have really good soundtrack work behind them, sound work, and I'd love your comments on it. Um, could you comment on the people behind the scenes who, who help you with that? And then the other question is, even though no-one's been murdered, is there a podcast in PricewaterhouseCoopers? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. <clears throat> I can answer that because um, I'm a huge audiophile and a big sound nerd. Um, And I had almost a year through the Jesse Cox Fellowship to develop an experiment and play around in a phenomenal studio with amazing sound artists and sound designers and and a composer who's a good friend of mine. Um, And that process really informed the style of how I wanted to tell the story, the tone of it. Uh, The music kind of became like a character itself. And it was really important to me that we took that very seriously. It's also why the production of the podcast took so long. Because you can tell a great story, but if you, you know, envelope that story with an audio world, you really encourage people to use their imagination. So it's often, you know, the sort of usual suspect way to do things is, oh, there's a door opening, so I have to put a sound of a door opening. But, you know, the sound design process is equally as invigorating and rigorous as the investigative journalism process. If you have the time, a lot of people don't often have the time because sound production is really involved. And if you have the luxury like I did, I feel really privileged to have had that, you can marry these two worlds so beautifully. And I think I've, I'm a, a screen person. I've come from TV and I started in radio years ago and sort of moved over and now sort of coming back. And it's really liberating because with audio, you have this one medium and every syllable counts, every word counts. Every bit of audio counts. Every bit of music counts. So you really make very strategic decisions because you want people to feel the things that you're feeling and you want people to see the world that you're building. So I call it world building, not sound design, because that's exactly what you're doing. And it really does trigger something in the imagination in a way that watching a film or watching television doesn't because the pictures do all the talking for you. 
So, yeah, I, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because we haven't really talked about it. But the, the sound design, the, you know, composing original music and thinking about it in a way that's not um, cliché and trying to do something a little bit different really also helps the story. How do you, I guess, how do you seek to convince audiences that balance is such an integral part of authenticity and, I guess, truth in journalism? Uh, and do you think that's a role for individual journalists to play, uh, media organisations, wider society? Who, whose role is it? Great question. Who wants to take that? <laughs> oh, no, that, that is a, a really interesting question. And it is something that I think that as journalists we're doing less and less of because it's more work and things shouldn't be a one-fact story and you are meant to pres- you are meant to be there just as the cipher saying on on the one hand on the other you are not meant to be there you know directing people people should be making up their own minds but i just think in a polarized society that's just not happening and I think in podcasts, you do have a little bit more leisure time to, you know, talk to people and to ask them, you know, what their views are. And hopefully to let people draw their own conclusions and not force your own or your, um, you know, your outlet's view on the world. But I think it's just sort of going by the wayside a bit, sadly. I think there's a really key word that helps me, and it's understatement. <laughs> I think there's a... There's a sort of school of journalism, and I remember this from when I was, um, you know, studying, that you have to spell everything out. Often, you know, when you spell everything out, the story gets really boring very quickly. But the idea of balance comes into that because if you are allowing people to sort of spend a bit more time and you give them more time and you have a real sort of cross-section of voices, you get that balance. But also what you get at the same time is this sort of understated approach where you don't have to script every bit of, you know, you don't have to back announce everything that everyone says or forward promote something everyone says. That's where people start to feel, oh, but is, the, is that the journalist's thought or is that the person that's about to speak's thought? So understatement is everything. The less you say, the more powerful the story can become and let the, the, let the people who, let the who, own, do that, the who own that story tell their own story without sort of imposing your... Um, opinions and ideas on it. No one cares what journalists think at the end of the day. They really don't. People care about great storytelling. So make room, like get out of the way and make room for the story to, to really shine. Um, I think Patrick's, Patrick is going to solve the <laughs> mystery murder of the podcast. Is Ruby the murderer? It's Ruby. <laughs> I thought I was the victim. No. <laughs> the murder weapon is a heavy road microphone. I think, I think there's another question. Um, oh, sorry, one last question and then, yeah, we'll wrap up. Uh, hi, sorry, mine's actually specifically for Kate. Uh, so I was just going to say we... Get we, him off, it's the sun. We, we all know about um, the ridiculous theories around where Melissa is, you know, that she's in Venezuela with a peg leg and whatnot. And so I just wanted your response on a theory that I saw recently from the reputable source of 4chan, which is um, that, one, that Melissa has gotten face-altering surgery and two, that she's assumed the identity of Kate McClymon. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, oh. Melissa Caddick. <laughs> and so if you could answer that, thanks. I can't believe my son would do this to me. Uh. <laughs> uh. Thank you. I'm sorry. He is disinherited. Uh. <laughs> no, but um, um, thank you for that wonderful question. Um, <laughs> What was it again? Am I Melissa Caddick? <laughs> Are you Melissa Caddick? Are you going oh. to officially deny right here, right now, that you were Melissa Caddick? Sadly, yes. Um, although I was showing these guys um, outside that I have been getting some really lovely texts from uh, Anthony Coletti lately. Oh God. <laughs> well, first of all, he started off really nicely saying, um, perhaps he could give me a haircut so we could get to know each other better. <laughs> and... All I could think of was hot tongs <laughs> and possible damage. So I suggested, why didn't we have a cup of coffee instead? And he didn't reply to me. And now he's, you know, this is before the inquest was being handed down. He was sending me messages saying that I'm a scam artist and that I'm ugly inside and out. Aww. Oh, Boo to that guy. Boo. Yeah. Oh. 
no, uh, no. What no. is 4chan? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can get to that later. Um, thank you so much, all three of you, for coming out tonight. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.